Coming up next, the booketing continues its journey into the dark recesses of the human soul as we read Flannery O'Connor. Welcome to the Book of Things. This is Nathan Opperson, your humble and obedient host. We've got Pastor Jacob Benzel over there. How are you doing, Jake? I'm doing well. I'll be doing better when you confirm that the audio is actually recording for me, just All so right. I feel good about myself. Mary had a little lamb. It's fleece was white as snow. Everywhere that Mary went. All right, we're good. Okay, just did not want to... Nope, that's... We should keep that in. <laughs> yeah. People can see a little bit behind the scene. A little bit behind the scenes, yes. We always say Mary had a little lamb into the microphones to test the audio. And it's surprising whenever we have guests or people in the studio that aren't used to it, nobody ever knows the lyrics. Beyond the ones that we just said. Yeah. Fleece was white as snow. And everywhere that Mary, if you're ever guest on the booketing, here's how it goes. Mary had a little lamb. Its fleece was white as snow. And everywhere that Mary went, the lamb was sure to go. It followed her to school one day. Which was against the rules. Against the rules. It made the children laugh and play. To see a lamb at school. That's what you do. That's what you do. If you need to recite Mary had a little lamb, you recite those words, you'll be fine. Hey, did I introduce you, Brandon? Mm, I don't know. Well, you're the baller who's a scholar of reading. That's what you are. And now this podcast is rising into the heights of amazingness as we talk about Flannery O'Connor. The thoughts of Nathan and Jake and Brandon are all going to converge together. Yep. And Because they must if they're yeah. rising. We've got three good men right here. We found them. Yep. And it ain't uh, no real pleasure in life, Nathan. N- no. I stole a glass eye from someone, Jake. I stole someone's leg. Not even their prosthetic. You stole someone's leg. (laughs) Actual leg. That's right. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) This book actually. This isn't a real book. It's hollowed out, and there's a flask of whiskey inside of it. (laughs) I hope that's all there is. I should say that. (laughs) That's all there is. is. (laughs) Hey. I want to start this episode by thanking David Kern for coming on last week to help us talk through. We're going a little bit out of booking order here because usually we sort of you know dial more in as we go. But last week we did a deep dive, close read style, which is David's podcast. We did one story, which was good country people. But today we're going to take a step back and finish up last week or no, two weeks ago. Brandon did some amazing context. He talked about Flannery O'Connor, who she was, gave all the facts of the case, just the facts, ma'am. Just the facts. And this week, we still have baggage check to do, and oh my goodness, it's the airplane going over, which indicates that it is, in fact, time to do baggage check. What? <laughs> oh, so exciting. Baggage check, of course, the part of the show where we give our baggage. Who wants to go first? Jake, why don't you go first? Sure. We have collective booking baggage, which we'll save till the end. Okay, uh, and I won't touch that. Flannery O'Connor. Mm-hmm. Flannery O'Connor was a period of of my a very brief period in my life in my early 20s when I read all of her short stories and felt good about it and enjoyed it. It's cathartic. Your words have some mystery to them. Perhaps we will solve them as Perhaps we move we on. Will. Yeah. Mystery. I like mystery. Yes. <laughs> Brandon, same question. Tim question? Tim question. Yeah. Okay. Ask it. Like Tim on Close Reads. I think yeah. they've got a Tim over there. Yeah, they do. Got David and Angela and Tim. All right. He actually yeah. said same. Same, same question. question. Same yes. question. What is the question? You do in oh, fact have my glass baggage. Ears. I stole one of your glass ears. Yeah. <laughs> my, my hearing This is going to take a good 20 minutes right here. Brandon's Flannery O'Connor baggage? It's actually not going to take as long as you'd think, because maybe it's not what people would expect my Flannery O'Connor baggage would mm-hmm. be. As much as I, I decided to study her in Brandon, college. did you murder Flannery O'Connor? I did. <laughs> <laughs> you, you gave her lupus. I, uh, yes. Uh, I went back in time. I do have a time machine. Um, <laughs> That's a big twist. You said no one would expect. Yeah. So that is the, that is the twist. Now, I read a couple Flannery O'Connor stories in high school. But I'm at, I, as I've been thinking through, knowing I was going to have to talk about this today, it's kind of strange. I didn't fall in love with Flannery O'Connor in high school when I first read her stories. I thought it was they were curiosities, but people know my history with literature, and I, don't, and I think people know that she never comes up when I'm talking about the big influences I had in high school. My big influences then were Tolstoy, and they were Dickens. Sure. And we're going to read one of the biggest influences I had, which was Bleak House, coming up here soon. We've read the other one, Anna Karenina, with mm-hmm. War and Peace. And so Flannery O'Connor really didn't do it for me at that point, where I actually began to appreciate Flannery O'Connor early in grad school. In particular, what I liked about her was her courage. So if you read her letters, 
She's very blunt and to the point. And a lot of times, like I, I said with Graham Greene when we did Context, those guys are soft. And what bothered me about a lot of literary studies in general and a lot of the people who were trying to be the elite writers of that period was that they were just never brave. Mm-hmm. They, and they were always soft and weak and fuzzy with their thinking. And then here you had Flannery O'Connor writing these stories that were meant to be direct and do this one thing, and it was supposed to be judgment, and she didn't really care what the establishment thought. And it was fascinating that she still became what's considered to be one of the most important short story writers of our time. And so all I have to say is I really liked Flannery O'Connor, but I don't think she's ever, she never has moved me in the way that Tolstoy or Dickens has moved me. But I liked her. I liked what she's doing. I mm-hmm. appreciated what she was trying to do. And maybe we can save this for later. I still do think that she has more backbone than some of the other Christian writers at the time who were doing, trying to do similar thing. Mm-hmm. For example, Graham Greene, maybe C.S. Lewis. <laughs> so it's an interesting question. Yeah, don't know whether I dare answer it. But I, I liked her enough that I mean, she was going to be the focus of my dissertation when we went on. A big family vacation. We did go to Savannah, Georgia, largely influenced by her because I wanted to go and see Georgia State University where they had her archives. We stopped by her grave and her uh, home and all those things. So yeah, she's been a prominent aspect of my literary adulthood. There you go. There you go. And you did last week's uh, or a couple weeks ago's contact without notes. That's right. I did it without notes. That seeped in O'Connor lore. Apologize for any inaccuracies that may have made it through, but I don't think there were any. <laughs> That's my favorite beginning to and end of a sentence. That... Because there weren't. <laughs> okay. Uh, Nathan, what is your Flannery O'Connor baggage? When I think of Flannery O'Connor, I think of a teacher that I had in school who I remember him going off one day in class and talking about serial killers. And he was a literature teacher, but he started talking about all the different serial killers. And he just got off on this weird tangent. And he spent the whole time talking about serial killers and Jeffrey Dahmer and different rapists. He had to apologize a couple of days later because some students complained to their parents who then complained to the faculty at large. And he apologized and bought us pizza. And this teacher... Read it. <laughs> <laughs> you should say that actually into the microphone yeah. did you eat it <laughs> uh, i don't remember much about the pizza brandon i'm sorry <laughs> although this teacher did end up being a rather naughty individual as it was <laughs> revealed later a naughty. A naughty, i don't really know how to talk about this there's actually not much more i think i can say but i think a lot of people have had teachers like that Nothing bad happened that I was involved in, but I knew this person and they were an adult and they were really into dark stuff like that. Yeah. And they liked to talk about that kind of dark stuff. It was kind of their thing. And they would talk about Dostoevsky, different literature. And I remember when I think about Flannery O'Connor, it's kind of a weird thing, but I think it's worth mentioning because it may color some of the way that I think about Flannery O'Connor. I really associate Flannery O'Connor with this individual and with the morbidity and the darkness and the depravity that this individual encapsulates in my thinking. And this person was absolutely obsessed with the story, A Good Man is Hard to Find. Absolutely loved that story and loved how it showed the hypocrisy at the heart of Christianity. Got a kick out of seeing these people meet their grisly end. And as it turned out, I got a kick out of seeing these people meet their grisly end, too, because I was, as we've established long, long since now on the bookening, a dark emo kid. And so I really enjoyed Flannery O'Connor. I don't think that this individual actually introduced me to Flannery O'Connor. I think I just stumbled across her in an anthology. I think maybe I mentioned this while talking to David last week. But I just read the story expecting it to be another humdrum sort of story. And then it ends with an entire family getting murdered really dramatically and i was like oh this is this is cool you know this is exciting this is like a this is like a david lynch movie or something like that this is this is this is bad so i sort of enjoyed flannery o'connor on on her sort of uh bad girl cred and i think that's worth mentioning because i know every i know there's no one out there that approached her like that i know y'all are much better than that and everybody just no one gets anything any purient delight out of flannery o'connor no it is a weird aspect of Flannery O'Connor in my life in particular. 
one of the draws Flannery O'Connor has for me, or had for me at the time, was that I, it was a particularly dark period of my life where God actually had to act directly in a very dramatic way to snap me out of it, to mm-hmm. show me myself, to redeem me. And uh, at that, when I, f- I went back to Flannery O'Connor, I remembered her stories, and we were people in my life at the time also. I mean, Tam had mentioned some of the stories to me again, and mm-hmm. I went back and I read her again, and um, that was a particular draw for me, was seeing this author who, to me, it wasn't unrealistic. Mm-hmm. I had seen it happen, right, that God does. And it was fascinating to me that she was able to write stories where obviously God is acting judgment, enacting judgment on these people, and they have this opportunity, this moment where, yeah, in I, a very I re- violent way, God is acting to redeem right. or to damn them. I responded to that, and I I responded uh, again to the to the horror movie of it all. I liked mm-hmm. the fact that it wasn't just emotional catharsis or you know spiritual epiphany. It was actually violent catharsis. There was mm-hmm. bloodshed, and she wasn't shy about depicting it. I mean, even though you don't really see anything in a good man is hard to find, it's so cruel what ends up happening at the end of that story that it's kind of formative or transgressive feeling. To me, at least it was in it a is. way that something like the first time is I saw There's a reason it, why that's the one that everyone talks about. It's the one that that's how I heard about Flannery O'Connor and how I found Flannery O'Connor and why I read every one of her stories is somebody was telling me how horrified they were because they read A Good Man is Hard to Find, and they didn't know what they were doing, mm-hmm. so they read it out loud in company. Yeah. I had never read it before, and nobody else had either. It was just supposed to be this great story by this great short story writer. So they read it out loud in company, and they were all so horrified by it. So I heard the story of how horrified everybody was, and I went to the library, and I... Of course. <laughs> I got a copy of A Good Man is Hard to Find, and... I read through it, then I went and got a copy of everything that rises rises must converge. And yeah, it's a good man in particular is certainly a story that has that mystique. And I remember hearing a story of a gentleman who tried to read it to his wife, and she started crying and wouldn't let him finish because she saw where it was going at a certain point. Yeah, yeah. Um, who was it? I don't remember. Well, you said transgressive mm-hmm. about this, especially a good man is hard to find. And I I have never told my wife or encouraged her to read this story mm-hmm. for that very reason. I don't think there's any, anything of use to her in this story. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have the mother who goes into the woods with a little girl and her baby, and you hear three pistol shots. Yeah, it's... It's, it's awful, because yeah. you know exactly what's... I mean, it's... Yeah. And she's brutal in the way she tells it, and I think the shock value uh, and, uh, is lost on us today because we're immune to this sort of brutality. Mm-hmm. And the way that a storyteller is going to be raw and tell it as it is and as it happens, and he's going to make you watch as it takes place. It does help to remember what Jake said about these stories appearing in like the Kenyan Review, mm-hmm. which was the elite journal for the South at the time. Right. And then suddenly you have this story. Mm-hmm. Um, it definitely, I think, was doing what she wanted it to do. It's screaming. Yeah. What it's screaming, I don't know, but it is screaming. Well, what the thing I'm always afraid, and we got to f- wrap up, baggage here actually because that's where we started but the thing i'm always afraid with these kinds of stories is that they scream so loud that they actually make you go deaf like it's just like yeah that was so transgressive that it didn't actually wake up my senses because of the horror it numbed them mm-hmm. it actually made me more calloused to this sort of thing not less and i'm not sure that's not that's not really a criticism of the story i'm not sure that i'm not sure that's ultimately where i'd land on it but it is the well, danger certainly Actually, you are getting at something because, and I think a lot of this episode is going to be baggage, right? Mm-hmm. Just kind of developing yeah. this, what's going on here. Yeah, because I think we all hit <laughs> this in a different way than we have before. Yeah, let's just, we started talking I mean, about this kids with now. David a yeah. little bit, uh, and we went a different direction in that conversation, which was great. And I want to thank him again for coming on. But I do want to pick up that thread because, yes, I think we, we did all kind of hit this differently this yeah, time. Yeah, so we had started processing to puzzle this, that. and... It, I mean, it was you that said, what was it you said? You said something that triggered a thought for me just about how, or maybe maybe you just brought up the idea that I had had in the episode before about just reminding ourselves context. Oh, yeah, that these, these would appear in the Atlantic or... Yeah, one story mm-hmm. in context instead of in a volume together. Mm-hmm. And then I just, I, I began processing just, uh, the truth is, I'd never, I remember... 
a time when Flannery O'Connor was like candy. Mm-hmm. Like I could sit down and just read Flannery mm-hmm. O'Connor stories, and they were fun. And I was looking forward to getting this volume and getting into them because I remember that I just I love short stories. Sure, I love sure. candy. I have a sweet tooth for short stories. Yeah, but these aren't sweet. They're at not, all. and you know, and I just I didn't have the stomach for them this go around. Well, to me, it reminded me of horror stories and or jokes because in both cases. A, in two two ways. Number one, you don't want to hear too many horror stories or jokes on top of each other. You ever tried to just read a joke book? It's like yeah, you could it's... be reading the funniest joke book, and after you've read three jokes, you don't want... Jokes are intended as a kind of spice. Like if you're having a conversation and you make a joke, it's like, oh, this is great. Then we go back to talking, you make another joke. That's great. But just reading joke after joke, it's like it numbs you and you stop laughing at a certain point, you know? Yeah. Same thing with horror stories, you know? There's only so much that that, that part of you can be stimulated before you go numb and you shut down you can only mm-hmm. scream so much you can only laugh so much and so to having them all piled on top of each other really doesn't help and I've, i'd actually never read a collection of flannery o'connor through before and to tell the truth i didn't this time i sort of dabbled and reminded myself and went back because i didn't want to do it i just didn't want yeah. to do it um so- yeah well i kept finding it's weird if you hand me a collection of short stories uh, it's to me it's like the best thing ever that's what I want. I can sit and I can read short stories. I can look forward every night to a new fresh story. And yet we're 0 for 2 on the booking in terms of Yeah, well, I, 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 I could, would come to the end of a of a of a day and think, "Oh, I've got Flannery O'Connor ahead of me." Mm-hmm. Ugh, I really don't want. And you know, um the second story in a good man is hard to find is The River and The River is directly responsible for the creation of this it's my favorite the creation of this show, and mm. it's my fi- it's my favorite O'Connor short story. At least that's what I would. That's my answer when right. you ask me what. That's my answer. I don't know if that if that holds. But I didn't want to read it. I read A Good Man Is Hard to Find the first it, the mm-hmm. title, and I, I just did not. I just didn't want to get back into that. Like, and part of it. Well, part of it I think might be the other similarity that I would say that these stories have to jokes and to horror stories, which is I just felt like. In the case of a joke or a horror story, once you know the punchline, it's just all you can do is stand back and admire the technique. The craft. Which can be great, but at a certain point, it's like this has spent itself. It's done its work. And it's good. That's not to take anything away from her accomplishment. It's like, it's a fantastic story that I don't know if that's the direction you were going, but that's that's what I found. Yeah. And it makes, well, what I didn't want to say is that probably... Half the reason why I got stuck on the river is because I've I don't need to process the river anymore. So you know I, I spend a day and I'm processing sin and depravity and its effects on people I love and care for in our church. And you know I don't need the story of the poor five year old boy because I know his name and I can tell you what his name is. And I live with that kind of pain in in real life. I don't I don't need it secondhand. Uh, I don't want it secondhand at the end of the day. And that's not it wasn't true when I was 20 something year, you know, 21, mm-hmm. 20 20 years old, whatever it was because I didn't have that kind of responsibility and I had once been some version of that 5-year-old boy and you know, it was cathartic in mm-hmm. its way. You've learned the lessons that she teaches you. I've learned the lessons. I live a life that has so much more weight and responsibility yeah. to it. I want something else from my stories. Yeah, I think that's just, I think what I think you're hitting on, one of the things I've told you about Flannery O'Connor when we were first reading her again, mm-hmm. was I feel like she's a one trick pony and mm-hmm. that she's, what, what metaphor did I use? Something, oh, a firework. Yeah. She goes off real bright and she like sears your eyes. Yeah. For a moment. Exactly like a joke or a yeah. horror story. Yeah. And she does her trick. Me- she blinds you. She pops in your ear. She's loud. She mm-hmm. does exactly what she wants to do. But after that's done, do you really need to go back and revisit it? Especially if you've matured to a point, like you have your pastoral work. We've all grown, we're, we're all dealing with things daily too, mm-hmm. that just, do we really want to go to Flannery O'Connor at the end of a day? Where all she's going to do is tell us what we already know and rub our faces in what we already see and deal with. So let me play. Let me ask the obvious question then. So if somebody loves to just luxuriate in Flannery O'Connor, are we saying that they're immature? Maybe. So let's qualify it. She's an excellent craftsman. She's an excellent 
I mean, she's she's top notch genius level at her craft. Mm-hmm. And so if what we're talking about is luxuriating in a brilliantly told story and a unique style, unique voice, unique, you know, there's so much that you can learn from Flannery O'Connor about how to write a short story. Yeah, some of the stuff we were talking about with, with uh, David, David last week. And which, some is of the stuff what, that, which is what, you know, when, when we asked him, asked him basically that was that the thing, right? Like, yeah. um, you get the point and then you come back to it and then you, what you have left is the craft. And and she's good and worth worth examining if and especially if you're a practitioner of the craft or someone like for example i actually write a fair amount of jokes for a living like you know that's one of the things i do on sound of sanity on our podcast is i come up with funny stuff and so i actually can read a joke book and get something out of it even when i'm not laughing because right. i'm looking at technique Right. And technique can be fascinating or even exciting. Like I can yeah. actually, oh, wow, look at how this person did that. And mm-hmm. they're actually not doing yeah. it to me at the moment. Like it's kind of weird. It's it's this ironic thing that happens where you step outside of something and you become excited about that technique. And in becoming excited about the technique, you actually you negate the effect of what, yeah. it, what it could actually do to you. Can I, yeah. can I, please, this is just a, so one thing, that we've noticed as we do the booking is that people often mature mm-hmm. and are able to write better things as they grow in maturity. Mm-hmm. And so some of Shakespeare's better plays are the plays he wrote later. Absolutely. Um, and we know that Shakespeare kept rewriting his plays. And so we actually don't know even what the original plays looked like. One thing with Flannery O'Connor we have to remember is that she died before she was 40. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I would posit, stupid word, but I'm still going to use it, that we don't see Flannery O'Connor's mature work. What we see is someone who's just beginning to learn how to actually produce the craft that can then express something that would be deeper and better. Mm-hmm. With some of her later stories, like Parker's Back and Judgment Day, we see her start moving towards... I would say The River as well mm-hmm. is a rare example in this volume There's here. There's some real compassion. Of a story that's actually sympathetic, and it, and it yeah. matters that it's about a child. Mm-hmm. I mean, just reading those par- ending paragraphs of that again, I'm almost making me cry over here. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. just, she's not cold in a way that she is with these other stories. She's very sad. Yeah. And... Um, I mean, we've said, uh, in, just go ahead and tell the story. Yeah, it's that a, we we were on the back porch. Yeah, we read Brandon read the river out loud. The reason, so to set it up a little bit, the reason the booking exists is because of an incident that happened on Brandon's back porch, and me and Jake were both over for some reason. I think we were actually on business of some type. Uh, I, don't I don't remember what, right. or I don't even. It, I, it was probably having to do with editing books. Yeah, it was a very early, this was before Warhorn Media was formally a thing, but it was something along the line of what we were kind of developing at the time. And so we went over to Brandon. old books back into print. Yeah. And uh, we just had a nice time on Brandon's porch. There may have been uh, some some whiskey imbibed. I don't think I'm ashamed to say. You folks know I don't like to come across as, you know, a cigar smoking whiskey drink. That's not my brand of Christianity that I'm really into. But we did, in fact, have some whiskey that night. And, and we probably smoked. Um, probably. Yeah, we probably smoked. Yeah, we probably did. I think I was smoking cigarettes at the time. So I don't know whether I was that smoking makes me... a pipe. Yeah. I was probably smoking a pipe. Yeah. So anyway, at, at a certain point, Flannery O'Connor came out and the story of the river was read. Yeah. Brandon read it. Mm-hmm. And we all, by the end... We're crying. We were crying. It's a hard story to make it through. Yeah. It's a very difficult story. And everything that she's wonderful at, just these brief little, like the hills speckled with purple flowers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like if you're from that area, you can see it. Or if you visited, you know, there's these, it's just beautiful the way she writes descriptions. Um, One thing we didn't talk about with Kern, but is she'll have these descriptions that'll just stick out. Like when she described his hat as the color of toast, Mm -hmm. right? She'll, she'll say these weird things that, really work. I mean, you can see a hat is the color of toast. Right. Right. And um, she's really gifted at that. And she's a great writer. And what I think is that, you know, we've talked about before how you have to marry technique with a real sympathy and compassion mm-hmm. yep. to actually get the real masterpieces. And that's what was missing in Dubliners, for example. Right. All you get there is yep. self-gratifying, authorial obsession. Mm-hmm. The author is obsessed with himself. Yep. With Flannery O'Connor, it's all about technique, and and she was really wanting to get this point across. She saw herself as on a mission, and I think that as she matures, and in the river, she taps in a, on, into something that we see in her more mature work. Mm-hmm. Like Revelation really is a sympathetic story, and Judgment Day is also she, this grandfather that she just hated in the geranium, 
is a very sympathetic character. You actually are sad for him as well in what happens in that story. It's a horrible ending, mm-hmm. like most of her stories are. But you feel it, the compassion that you don't feel in the geranium. So I think that had she lived 10 or 20 more years, we would be talking about, well, these stories are interesting because they show us this author who's working on this technique that she would then master in these yeah, later works. we may never have seen her full maturation. That's interesting. David asked last week, what's missing? Is anything missing from Flannery O'Connor? And I've been thinking about that since then. Compassion was the word that jumped into my mind. I didn't say it on last week's episode because I wasn't sure. I'm not sure whether that's right. I mean, she is ma- she is a master of what she's doing in the stories that that we have. But yes. She seems like... What she seems like is an early, um, is someone who was just converted, and mm-hmm. they're really dogmatic about the doctrines that they now know, like a person who just became reformed. Mm-hmm. And so now they're going to go and they're going to stuff uh, leaflets and leaf- well, mailboxes. What's or... everybody's favorite um, word? Cage stage. Cage stage, but Cage. also the, the Thunder fact. Thunder puppy. Well, the, the reform buzzwords everybody loves. Tulip. Tulip, yeah, that's right. Predestined mm-hmm. and all those. So you and you'll get like all they're ever going to talk about is the fact that some are predestined and some aren't. Mm-hmm. And right, well, everybody's predestined. And yeah, and they, then they, if they're going to write they a story, a Calvinist until two weeks ago, but now nobody who's a, who's not a Calvinist could even be saved. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. And so, and if they're if a person like that was going to write a story, it would be a very cold, cruel look at life just to show you and stuff this predestination theme down your throat. Right. And so I think that we have to keep in mind that that's kind of what she's doing with these stories, is she's someone who thinks that she really just has to get this theme down your throat. And with her, it's her Roman Catholicist, her Roman Catholic view of salvation. And also you do have to then keep that in mind too, because obviously as sad as the river is, the ultimate point is kind of perverse and that this kid is trying, she thinks... I think she thinks that there is some salvation for the kid and just trying to be- get baptized and just the act too. of mm-hmm. being baptized. And that's, that's twisted. It is. So, it's wrong. Yeah. She reminds me a lot of a conservative writer of who he wrote a book, I think, called The American Conservative, Russell Kirk. Died not too long ago, I don't think. But Russell Kirk wrote ghost stories, actually. A lot of people don't know. And they're really good. But they always end with what he called a signal act of contrition which is the moment where someone redeems themselves generally through bloodshed, either their own or in his most famous story, a drifter murders a child molester or something like that and kills himself in the process, but manages to remove evil from the world and sanctify himself. And he basically gets accepted into heaven, I think, in some bogus spiritualist sort of thing. But Flannery O'Connor, to a less ridiculous over-the-top degree, feels exactly the same to me. Um, she has an agenda. Yeah, she's well, to what push she's on. giving you, I mean, this this Roman Catholic gospel of redemption through catharsis, and cathartic means whether it's cathartic violence or cathartic, what's the word, blood? Bloodletting? Bloodshed? I don't know. Um, cathartic bloodshed. Sanguinary catharsis. That sounds awfully fancy. Sanguinary means bloody. Sanguinary catharsis. You might have coined that, Nathan. Yeah. Sanguinary I also love means it. like... Um... Violent catharsis, sanguinary catharsis. It's, I mean, it's sort of... What's striking is how how pervasive it's actually become, right? Like, she's writing in a time where, and in a context where she's trying to shoot... She's trying to riddle this veneer of Southern gentility and Christian everything... Mm-hmm. She's trying to riddle it with bullet holes with every little story that she tells. She's trying to pierce it. Right. And what we have now, not so much in the church, maybe, but in mainstream culture, is just this. That's that's all it is. Game of Thrones is, of course. Game of Thrones, you... Breaking Bad, mm-hmm. Mad Men. We're still recording this in the Halloween season. Right. Right, like it's all these ways that we process our guilty consciences, and the fact that we all know that judgment's coming for us through these cathartic stories where people die and are killed and are See, that's maimed, what... and then we and then we feel a little bit better about ourselves, like we've processed our own guilt through the pro, through through that, and that's what circling way back around to the question that you know, I think we just got. We're on a parenthetical qualification for if you luxuriate in Flannery O'Connor, are you immature, Mm -hmm. right? We need all the reasons why maybe not, but if what you're luxuriating in is just sort of this cathartic way of, of dealing with depravity, 
your own depravity, your own guilt before God, the own cut, your own your own judgment that's before you vicariously through these stories. If they don't shake you awake and make you deal with God, but you just sort of luxuriate in them, that's perverse. It's mm-hmm. perverse and it's immature and it's not different than. Flannery O'Connor was meant to be matured past, and she probably would have been the first to admit it if she had any sense. Yeah, what she was trying to get people, what she probably thought she was trying to get people to was square one. Mm-hmm. The problem is, you square one feels so real and cathartic that, well, what if we just live there? And then we can feel more real than everybody else, all those stupid idiots that don't get it, without maturing to real repentance and into real hope. It hurts so good to have that little shot of truth fullness about the way the world is and the way people are. You know, and I think it's a point that you, you maybe made in our first episode. Well, you end up becoming the kind of character that she writes about in the stories. You become Holga in Good Country People that we talked about last Yeah, you last think Holga wouldn't have enjoyed reading Flannery O'Connor and thinking to herself, that's how... a, That's all she did. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. what she did. She mm-hmm. got her PhD and she, she had read a bunch of Flannery O'Connor. She had read The Philosophers, mm-hmm. you know, and thought she had understood the world and the darkness of it. And then she'd changed her name from Joy to Holga. And she, you know, and she brooded about and she clunked around with her leg and let everybody know. And, you know, she reinvented herself, you know, and she couldn't be made to be happy because she... She had triumphed over that with her dark brooding. She didn't get depravity. And so she gets the leg pulled out from underneath her in the yeah. end. Mm-hmm. Right? That's right. And yes, it's immature to just live in this place and luxuriate in well, this and also, stuff. Well, and also, I get it because I grew up in a very shallow, sort of happy, clappy version of Christianity. And so that was one of the reasons I was attracted to uh, Flannery O'Connor. That was one of the reasons that I was friendly with this obviously dumb in retrospect, teacher, mm-hmm. um, and wicked. But, oh, I don't know what I'm trying to say. I guess what I'm trying to say is, I don't know how ultimately effective Flannery O'Connor is, actually. That's, I hate to ask this question because it's such a sort of, um, oh, I don't know, profane question to ask. How but, effective she is? Well, I mean, she won. Game of Thrones is now doing the same thing. Flannery O'Connor is mainstream. Every other story that you watch on must-see TV is a good man is hard to find. The pagans are putting throwing that stuff in our face all the time. I'm sure maybe there's some little pockets of Christianity. Well, because, maybe you grew well, up in a pocket of Christianity like I did, where people were real shallow. But the world at large wallows in depravity. And what has it done? The for world us? at large loves partial truths mm-hmm. because partial truths. The closer it is to the truth, the better a lie it is. Mm-hmm. And so the closer you you get to the real depravity of man and the real the reality of judgment and the coming judgment the reality of that we all going to have a co- our comeuppance we're all going to die you're going to die and you're going to face god the closer you get to that without getting there the better the lie it is but if you don't actually get there then have you achieved anything at all that's i think that's what i'm i did not come into this episode actually knowing that this was where I was going to start circling around landing. I did not think that there was actually maybe an answer to David's question of what's missing. But now I'm sort of starting to think maybe in her later stories, she finally starts to synthesize (laughs) everything in a good way. But in this collection, basically, there actually is something missing. It actually is cathartic judgment, divorced from real grace in a way that ultimately I'm not sure how helpful it is, actually. I know that's pretty out there. Yeah, yeah I, w- I want to, I think I agree with you. I feel like we also should make space for only telling part of the story in our Yeah, art. we have to because, um, of course. Can't, could, could you give, is there somebody that you would give a copy of? Well, that's the million dollar question, isn't that it? you would recommend? Yeah, but it wouldn't be me. I think maybe that's just what, and it wouldn't be me 15 years ago even, I don't think, actually. Yeah. Because I always knew how depraved the world was. Yeah. If someone really actually yeah. truly is happy clappy, if they're the kind of person that's going to dislike Flannery O'Connor, if they're the kind of person that won't even make that's it through a good man, the book across the room. then they're the kind of person that should read it. If you are even, a, if you were able to get through a good man is hard to find, then maybe you shouldn't read a good man is hard to find. Not to be Mr. Paradox here, but yeah. I don't know. Yeah, because you think about, I can think particularly of two men or two young men who are fairly unself-aware, mm-hmm. but would not be helped by Flannery O'Connor. Yeah. Well, and what's... Mason- it's so obvious. That, yeah. I mean, like, 
we could all start naming names of either people that you don't want to read Flannery O'Connor who may or may not, or the people you know that are obsessed with them. They all have the same bad things going on in their lives. But it doesn't mean that she didn't have their number, right? Right. No, because she, she did. writes about those two no, young she men. Did have their number, and, yeah. and maybe, and that's what's that is what's great about. But they, and they, her. but they would never see it. And so, so is the question whether or not her shouting and screaming was even effective? Right? Yeah. Well, there's two questions. A was it effective back then? And that's hard a, to answer. That's a slightly well, different question. As far as than the is game effective of, now, the Game of Thrones and the Breaking Bad questions. What are they missing? They're obviously missing any attempt at making it redemptive. Mm-hmm. Right, they're just showing the brutality of the world, <clears throat> and any and any attempt at redemption they have is not going to be Christian. Right, at least she had it was Catholic, but she was trying to give it a Christian redemptive something, um, something. Yeah, yeah. She may have failed, and like Jake said, not every single one of her stories had to be explicitly like with the misfit talking about Jesus at the end, because she was a better artist than that. Mm-hmm. She still wanted to have this element that. Life worked in such a way that God built judgment into our own actions, right. and that by acting certain ways, we would get judgment whether we wanted it or not. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the way she tried to create and show the world, mm-hmm. which, yeah, fair enough, sure. it is. You see it all the time. But the question is, is whether or not one just uh, one trick like that over and over again is really something that's helpful. Well, it's almost like any given story is good. Any given yeah. story is helpful. Yeah. I'm not sure that any I would... Any given story that you come across in the Atlantic. Sure. Yeah. Which it, is, as far as her, you kind of have to take a step back and say, is her <laughs> oeuvre helpful? Because obviously an artist can be cynical here. You know, we've told stories. We tell stories on our other yeah. podcast and they don't always end happy and they don't always have a gospel message. Right. And obviously we're okay. We're not saying that you have to have everything in one story. But her work at large, her, I don't know. I don't even know how to ask the question exactly. Is it worth reading more than just a representative collection of her stories, right? Is it really worth reading all of her stories and then reading them over again? I don't think... Like it is revisiting a Shakespeare play. Yeah. Well, now that you put it that way, I think my answer is basically no, not for me. Um, Her technique's awesome, but there's a lot of awesome technique out there. Yeah, I'm not personally so enamored by her technique, nor do I feel like there's so much that I can gain from uh, analyzing it or scrutinizing it, or, yeah. or just even the pleasure of scrutinizing it yeah. isn't for me so great that she really has much to offer me at this point in my life. To be honest, I was kind of throwing him a bone, but mm-hmm. the best of her stories, they don't stand up to the dead. No, I don't yeah. think The don't dead think so run circles all. around her. Especially if we're talking technique. And Honest? just the, the way it moved me. Mm-hmm. None of her well, stories yeah. today yeah. moves me. I mean, that's, he he taps into something. It really is just top to bottom. Yeah, he just taps into something fundamental there at the end that we all feel with other people in our lives. This, just this longing to know someone and then the fact that you really never completely know them and Mm -hmm. just. What I want to say is that Joyce, for all his failings, and we talked about them a lot in the Joyce episode, when he wrote The Dead, I imagined him telling me the story and taking me by the shoulder and saying, you know, there's something I'm excited about that I want to show you about yourself, about humanity, something I've discovered. With Flannery O'Connor, even in the later stuff, it's almost always she's got a furrowed brow. You know, if I'm standing with her, she's got a furrowed brow and she wants to lecture me. And to me, literature, what it gets at is Robert Pym Warren and uh, understanding poetry. He writes about how poetry really taps into the felt experience that we Mm -hmm. all share in common. It's this shared thing that we all have as humans that we happen to feel and experience the world. And so every time I see a frozen window pane and snow falling outside, I inevitably think of the dead. Mm-hmm. It has burned that image into my head, right? And I don't know if Flannery O'Connor, except maybe with a bull, <laughs> has done that for me. For me, Flannery O'Connor's more like watching a Coen Brothers movie or reading a really awesome, grotesque cartoon or something where... Yeah. And this isn't to denigrate her. I mean, she's good at what she does. It's just... But does it do that indelible thing that literature is supposed to do? Not so much. I think it me. does the thing that a short story can do. I don't think that except in a rare, rare, uh, with some exceptions, The River would be one. Mm-hmm. Revelation and Judgment Day would be two others. And Parker's Back, too, is for, from what I remember, would also be another one. She doesn't really. But like I said, I give her the benefit of the doubt, thinking that she might have. Mm-hmm. She died young. Yeah. Well, I keep when you say that, I keep comparing her in my mind to Jane Austen, who did become more understanding, less caustic, I think. Yes. Pride and Prejudice, for all its wonders, and it is a perfect novel, is also a very caustic one. And by the time she wrote Persuasion, those bad guy characters are just a little bit more nuanced and 
there's a little bit more and, understanding. And that's a fair point because Jane Austen died around the same age. Yeah, and Jane Austen was similar, had a similarly uh, dour point of view, especially yeah. about the women in her society. So yeah, I've actually been comparing them a little bit since since we were talking with David last week because you've got two single ladies that are writing scathing reviews of their own societies. Yeah. And maybe Jane Austen's actually a good point, good reference point to sort of talk about what it is that I find comes up short in Flannery O'Connor because Jane Austen, for all her cynicism, and she had a lot of it, gave you somebody to root for at the end. And, mm-hmm. you know, you saw the, not just the battered cynic beneath the idealist, but you saw some of the idealist, you know, she could give us a Mr. Knightley. I think a lot of it has to do with the way that What's the quote you like to say about Augustine with a dead body? It's not really a quote. He was. A, it's just a riff on the, the distinctions he makes between less of the flesh, the less of the eyes. Yeah. And how, and he does talk about how there's nothing enjoyable about seeing a dead corpse at the side of the road. Yeah. The, all the pleasure lies in the fact that this is something that's wrong, unnatural, and in some way forbidden. It's a vain and unholy curiosity there's some there's some extent that a good man is hard to find mm-hmm. the story that's her most popular kind of exemplifies that yeah and um, i think it's popular for precisely that reason and i think that that's the wrong reason for it to be popular mm-hmm. i think that a lot of people use it as an excuse to read something that they shouldn't be reading about because it has a redemptive quality to it at the mm-hmm. end and so then they use that as an excuse so that they can read about these things that we're not supposed to read about now, it doesn't mean that there aren't Flannery O'Connor stories that are, don't do that and that are okay because they do that, but not with such a profane pessimism to mm-hmm. it. But when I reread that story this time, it left a very sour taste in my mouth. I, I don't see how I would recommend that to someone. And Yeah, the moment that stands out for me in re, re-going through it was that they're, the bad guys are taking the, the mom and the girl and the baby into the woods. And Flannery O'Connor gives the nat- the bratty little girl another horrible bratty little thing to say right before she goes into the woods to get shot, which to me is just stacking the deck a little bit. Like it's mm-hmm. just, there's something mm-hmm. nasty about, I've showed you these nasty people. And now even in a place where your natural human sympathy wants to go out to them, I'm going to prove that it shouldn't. And even maybe give you a little perverse kick out of the fact that this little bratty girl who's been so awful the whole time mm-hmm. is about to get what's coming to her. And so they're just, they felt something a little puerile about it. No, I think I picked up on the same thing. And I just, this this question of, is there enough of value here? She's a great writer. Anyone who wants to be a writer can look at her stories and see the mechanics of how a short story works. But in the end, is the person who a good man is hard to find going to be useful for actually ever going to read a good man is hard to find? Yeah, and I have to be useful to probably no. Actually. And probably the person who's going to read A Good Man is Hard to Find is going to be the exact sort of person who never should have read it in the first place. Right. Was that true 50 years ago when people stumbled across it in the Atlantic or wherever it was first published? I have no idea how to answer that question. That's a good question. Um, um, the, it made a whole lot of people mad. Her mom hated a lot of her stories. And her friends, her mother's friends, hated a lot of her stories too. Um, but I don't have any impression that it ever saved a single one of them. Right. <laughs> so all it did was make them mad. I was a little bit like, did Fred Phelps ever save anybody? I know that's unfair to Flannery O'Connor. And I mean, I think it gets to what one of our soapboxes has been on the bookening is that if you look towards your art to save anyone, it's not going to do that work. Yeah. That actually puts the finger for me on why I don't really need or want Flannery O'Connor anymore, because the work that she's attempting to do is salvific, actually, and therefore... It comes she's up short. She's trying to do too much. Yeah, she's going to do too much or too little or something because yeah. she's kind of meddling. Well, she's trying to do too much, so she, she inevitably therefore does, does too, too little. little. Yep, yeah. that's the right way to put it. She thinks that the function of her stories is basically to be didactic, and yeah. I think stories are inevitably didactic, but I think if you go about as an author, I think it's one of those weird ironies of being an artist. If you try to be didactic, nine times out of ten, you will fall on your face. If you simply are and allow the thing to be didactic as as it will be, then you have a much better chance of saying something helpful for people. I don't know why that is, but it seems to be true, borne out by many of the better things we've read. Yeah, well, when it comes down to it, if I had somebody who I was trying to decide whether or not to give them Flannery O'Connor because they're someone who would actually read it, Mm -hmm. I would probably just tend to give them Anna Karenina instead or something like that. I knew you were going to say Tolstoy, and that was... I did too. Yeah. Well, it's the right impulse. Yeah. 
it's the impulse that we've all grown to have just by doing this show and talking through these things together because Tolstoy, he's a realist who understands people oh. and yeah. And so he gives you villains and depravity, but villains who are sympathetic and understand ways you can see yourself in them in a way that you can't see yourself in the misfit, you mm-hmm. know, and ways to see yourself in the other characters and to process who you want to be. Just think about like the river, the little boy in the river versus Anna's son, mm-hmm. the chapter surrounding him. Yeah. That's, I mean, that so. still makes me sick thinking of those chapters with him. Oh. Um, okay, guys. So, gosh, um, I did not actually see this is the fun. This is what I like. This is an ep- the kind of episode of the booking I like because I didn't know where we were going to land when we went into this, and I certainly didn't know where I was going to land. But does somebody just want to say where we land? Uh, I guess we'll ask the question Should people read A Good Man is Hard to Find? I'm, su- I'm still going to say maybe. Yeah. And, uh, and here's why I'm going to explain. I agree with everything that we've said. And I, I think the only space I want to make is just. If we think too hard about it, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, we're going to tell people that they should only read Tolstoy. Right. <laughs> I know. Or yeah. if we think even harder, just the Bible. Just the Bible. That's right. right. And I think that Flannery O'Connor probably, her stories can be and have been used to good effect. I still, even if I don't want to read The River, I still think it's probably a good and helpful story for people or yeah. certain people. Yeah, and you don't want to um, make the mistake of judging her too harshly based on the actual story. A good man is hard to find, which is no. it's easy to filter everything. Through I think that it's one. unfortunate yeah. that that's and, the one. Yeah, you know, at the very, I can probably, despite everything that I've said that we've said, so far I can see myself coming back and reading a story every once in a while as a palate cleanser of sorts, mm-hmm. maybe. Yeah, I mean, I could actually go through the book and I could name the ones that I would recommend. Mm-hmm. You going to do it? River, they should read. Parker's Back, they should read. Judgment Day. Mm-hmm. Here, can I get Jake's book? Yeah. Brennan, Jake Jake just had to take a phone call, folks. That's the kind of shoddy podcast that we do. No, no, it's, he's an important. Um, he has important so here, anyone actually dealing with a child is pretty good. I would recommend The Turkey. It's good. It's her early one of her early stories. I would recommend um, The River. I would recommend Greenleaf. I would recommend The Enduring Chill. I would recommend, oh man, it's hard to read, but The Lame Shall Enter First is a good one. And then I would recommend her last three, Revelation, Parker's Back, and Judgment Day. Mm-hmm. So people really want to get a feel for what she is in, in the height of her craft. Those are the great, those, those rank with any of the greatest short stories. I personally think after reading A Good Man is Hard to Find that it's hard to stomach, and I think there are reasons for it. I think what she was trying to do, she took a risk, and she, she was profane. Yeah, but I could see myself doing the same thing. I could see I you could do too. I mean, yeah. it's, it's sometimes risks pay off, sometimes yeah. they don't. She was trying to use pain as God's megaphone, as yeah. C.S. Lewis said. And so then the ending to that story is not as effective as the ending to some of these other stories. Like, Revelation does not end violently. So what it is, is it's about... A, I'll just tell the story of Revelation yeah. real fast. It's a, it's a strange story. It's about... This woman, yeah, Mrs. Turpin, and so what happens is she goes with her husband into a doctor's office, and then she sees all these people, and she judges them the whole time. And she's supposed to kind of be the same sort of character that Mrs. Hopewell was, mm-hmm. right? Refined, uh, the sort of person you would see in, like, um, Driving Miss Daisy, right. or what's that other one? The Help. Or... Yeah, that sort of woman. And so, but then what happens at the end is she kind of has this revelation, and she sees all the people together ascending into heaven. And as kind of like uh, when Paul had, or was it Peter who had the vision of the food? Peter, yeah. That's kind of the yeah. uh, what it's echoing there. Mm-hmm. And they're all going together. They were clapping and leaping like frogs. They were marching behind the others with great dignity, right? All these things. And then she doesn't know why she has this vision. At length, she got down and turned off the faucet and made her slow way on the darkening path to the house. In the woods around her, the invisible cricket choruses had struck up. But what she heard were the vo- voices of the souls climbing upward into the starry field and shouting hallelujah. Mm-hmm. See? Mm-hmm. That's actually a more hopeful ending to anything than anything she would have had in her earlier stories. Yep. And so I would highly recommend these. Judgment Day is it's sad. It's it's about uh, again this old racist white man who goes to New York City to live with his daughter, and then the way she just despises him, and he just longs for home, and then horrible things and and happens to him as you could expect. But it's more tasteful than her younger writing would be. Mm-hmm. But that's no surprise. She matured. She yeah. learned how to do it better. It happens to people. Yeah. And so, yeah, I would definitely recommend these stories. I mean, that's a good handful of the ones she wrote. 
And if you really like those, go and read her others too. But yeah, she's absolutely no reason not to read her. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 no. We just like to ask the hard questions on the booking, so that's what we've done. Um, but yeah, I like Flannery O'Connor. I think she's in some ways not for me, and I think that that's okay. I think people should have the right to mature out of things and not think that that's a knock against the thing itself. There are things that just work at a certain period of your life, and you know. Uh, I don't know. Let's do donor shoutouts. Brandon, Jake's taking a phone call right now. All right, Brandon, I'm going to read these donors really fast, and you just shout them out any way you want. I'm just going to barrel through them because we're we're short on time today. All right. The Mysterious Mason. The Mysterious Mason. The Immortal Chelsea E. The Immortal Chelsea E. Nathan, not me. Nathan, not me. Jimmy Beam and Little Annie Oakley. Jimmy Beam and Little Annie Oakley. Lily of the Valley. Lily of the Valley. Andrew and Esther and Little Baby Timothy. Andrew and Esther and Little Baby Timothy. The Inscrutable Jenny Z. The Inscrutable Jenny Z. Robert and Rhonda, the Lovebirds. Robert and Rhonda, the Lovebirds. John and Jill and Little Baby Max. John and Jill and Little Baby Max. The Incandescently Beautiful. Beautiful, wonderful, glorious, feminine, uh, sweet glory that is Meredith. Hey, Meredith. <laughs> the Keith Master. The Keith Master. David's Mighty Men Trucking. David's Mighty Men Trucking. <laughs> bah, my beloved mother, Beth. Nathan's beloved mother, Beth. Maya. Maya. Rockin' Ryan and Jumpin'. Judy, Judith. Oh, they always say something about them being the insurpassable or... Oh, shoot. Yeah, and I told... I you told me I to remember. remember it. Yeah. Oh, shoot. The well, insurmountable. I'll hear it when I... The incomparable. The incomparable. We'll say incomparable today. The incomparable Ryan and Judith. The incomparable Ryan and Judith. I think that might be what it was. That might have been, yes. Danny the Dude. Danny the Dude. <laughs> DJ Sammy G. DJ Sammy G. Wicka Wicka. G, uh, uh, Jay and Katie, who are cold and love cheese, and they're wonderful children. Hey, Jay and Katie, who are cold and love cheese, and your little wonderful children. Yes, yes, yes. And you're bigger. Should you be what? in bed? <laughs> you think they're listening to this at like I think they listen to it like at midnight at midnight yeah, yeah. <laughs> they should all be in bed yeah My, I, I'm gonna say uh, Benny T and Dana Benny T and Dana yeah Eric and Catherine the lovebirds Eric and Catherine the lovebirds and Doctor and Lady X Doctor and Lady X and that concludes and that concludes donor shout outs donor shout outs alright Brandon I'm gonna take your glass eye no Nathan well, I'm gonna take your artificial leg fine Fine. I'm going to take your playing cards. Well, <laughs> you can have them. Hey, the book league today was written and produced by Nathan and executive produced by Nathan and Jake. And it featured the great Brandon Chastine, the great Jacob Menzel, the great Nathan Alberson. Yeah, go to patreon.com forward slash the booking and sign up, sign yourself up, Brandon. I will do that, Nathan. All right. And hopefully many fine folks join you, support the booking and get all kinds of cool stuff. 50 bucks a month. We'll send you the book with some cool drawings and witty sayings, a little epigrammatic wit of Brandon Chastine and the sly cool wit of Jake Menzel and uh, yeah. The nice drawings of Nathan Alverson. Did you say that? Yes, the drawings of Nathan Alverson and uh, yeah, thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with whatever we're doing then. <laughs> <laughs>